Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And the world is going to shit. We'll just leave it at that. Um, as we talk about the Supreme Court, we talk about conversations around Miranda, Roe versus Wade, reproductive justice, women's rights, all of these things. It's just, it's too much. It's too much to unpack in one episode. It's too much to unpack uh through a variety of episodes, but it, it does deserve its own conversation because the way that we perceive women in this country is unfair. Um, when we talk about the fact that the name of this podcast is Equity Matters, um, send this to your local politician. How about that? Um, yeah, we got to do better. I feel like Bernie Mac during the cutscenes where he's talking to all of us and say, you know, America, something's got to change. I need to just go ahead and enter the clip. Maybe I'll I'll try to do that one day. But in the meantime, what I want to do is prepare to have a conversation in a similar vein. But this time we're talking about student athletes. And you may recall from an episode last year even where a good brother of mine, uh, Dr. Marcus Dexter, came to talk to us about sports and talk to us about recruitment and what that experience is like for student athletes and some of the stereotypes and themes that come up in that experience. What you're going to hear today is a a spiritual sequel. Those, Those happen on the podcast from time to time. When you have a really good episode that stands out, someone reaches out and say, hey, I've got something that I want to talk about in a slightly tangential form. And we're going to hear from Dr. Mecca Marsh who is a student athlete or previously a student athlete herself and was able to help us with really breaking down some of those stereotypes, but also the gender disparities that come with that. And so when we talk about the experience of being a student athlete for a woman, it looks very different than that for a man, especially a man that plays in a revenue generating sport as opposed to a woman who might not. I also want to point out in this episode an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for learning for myself. And you'll hear it in the episode where I made the mistake of saying female and male. And that is something that I continue to work on because I I don't believe that we live in this binary society where there is one or the other. And so bear with me as I continue to grow. I hope you enjoy today's episode and Guess without further ado, we'd love to introduce you all to Dr. Mecca Marsh. Dr. Marsh? Yeah. So, like you said, Dr. Bell, uh, my name is Dr. Mecca Marsh. I am actually uh, a second generation Dr. Marsh. Uh, my father is Dr. Clifton Marsh, and my mom is Johnny Hill Marsh. And so, I'm also a second generation student affairs professional. This is the family business. Uh, I call home between two places. One is in Norfolk, Virginia. And yes, I said it, Norfolk. It is pronounced N-A-W-F-O-L-K, even though it's spelled N-O-R-F-O-L-K. So we can definitely tell where people are from, how they pronounce it. (laughs) And then uh, my family also lives in Richmond. So I kind of commute between those two. Uh, I received my bachelor's degree and uh, Bachelor's of Arts from Lemoyne College, a very small Jesuit institution in upstate New York. When people ask, where is that? I normally say, you ever heard of Syracuse University? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, I went to the other school, right? So I was a college athlete, which I'll share a little bit more later. I received my master's degree from James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, with a focus on college student personnel. And then I received my uh, EDD from the Virginia State University here in um, Petersburg, Virginia. So very excited about that. Uh, And that's kind of my educational background. VS, VS, VSU, huh? Yes. I I went on a black college tour in high school. And now that you've pronounced Norfolk the correct way, now I know (laughs) why they were looking at me like I was crazy. But I I went to both Norfolk and um, Virginia State. I was actually ready to go to Virginia State and Morgan, but neither, for whatever reason, when it came to me applying, their applications were down. At mm. the time. Yeah, another life, but glad to know that I've got another HBCU grad on here. 
I'm been really intentional lately trying to find folks outside of the traditional HU. And yeah, so yeah. always glad to elevate other voices. So let's talk about kind of what made our paths cross in talking about athletes, talking about academics. And I know we initially talked after Marcus Dexter's episode because you were really interested in really the, the story behind that, especially being an athlete yourself. And so let's talk about the problem as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One, of, one of the glaring disparities that we observe with college athletes are in the fact that a majority are black, yet they make up a smaller portion of the overall student population across these campuses. Could you explain why that is? So there's a variety of different reasons. Um, but I think the first reason why I started to want to do this work in reference to this is I'm a former college athlete myself. And I remembered, you know, I started off as a non-student athlete because I was injured from high school and I've been playing basketball since I was 10. And so I went as a, as a quote unquote regular college student. And when I became a student athlete, like these doors started opening up, you know, it was like the scene from the Wizard of Oz, you know, um, And the sad part about it is I got injured and then boom, I was just a quote unquote regular student. And so wanting to kind of find out what happens to black student athletes, particularly at PWIs, you know, division one, division two. And so I ended up doing my dissertation work on that. And so the title of that is a dream deferred, a quantitative study investigating student athletes attitudes towards career development. And so we have these black men that come into these colleges, partic- particularly PWIs and Division One, and you know there's a small population that comes in, right? So you look at the uh, class to prison pipeline, you know. So by the third grade, you can tell how many prisons based off of the black males in the third grade. And so if you can get a black male who is 18 years old, graduated from high school, you know, is not incarcerated has not died, that population is already small to begin with. Then they actually get to college and there are some times where they're academically not prepared. So one of the things, Sean Harper was really great person. You know, a lot of my work came from him. He had a quote that says, perhaps nowhere in higher education is the disenfranchisement of black male students more insidious than in college athletes at major universities. And so our black males are seen as commodities. And so, you know, particularly in our revenue generating sports, which are your basketballs and your football and possibly baseball. And so the small population happens because even black males before they become student athletes, you know, are they financially able to attend college? Are they academically ready for college? You know, did their family support them going to college? We still have a majority of students who are attending college who are first generation college students. You know, also um, the last thing is they may be just attending just because of athletics. So there's no other reason they could go. Now, a little bit of history of this is in reference to desegregation kind of opened the door for black athletes to attend these PWIs. However, 1973, uh, NCAA made these two things called uh, Prop 48 and Prop 16. So talk a little bit about that. So back in 1973, you have to remember that's less than 10 years since desegregation but for the Commonwealth of Virginia, less than five, because we did not decide to desegregate until the 70s. And so the GPA to play sports, you just needed a 1.6 GPA. There was no standardized testing. If you had a heartbeat and you could play, you can go to college. But then when Prop 48 happened, it moved it from a 1.6 to a 2.0. So you already are starting to knock out uh, black males. And the SAT score was 700, the ACT was 15. And then they moved it even higher to Prop 16, which moved the GPA from 2.0, 2.5. So you already have a small population of black males attending college. And then you kind of wean it out that they have to have these higher GPAs so they're not college ready when attending these PWIs. I don't want to gloss over the fact that your dissertation included one of my favorite Lexi Hughes poems. So I just want to pause <laughs> for a dream deferred. Um, Great work. Also love the fact that Raising in the Sun is referenced in there as well. Well, and I appreciate that. And the thing about it is that just kind of happened. I was literally asleep trying to figure out, you know, what to name this, <laughs> this body of work, right? And I literally heard the poem and I was like, 
oh my gosh. And so that's where it came from. But in the beginning of my dissertation, I, I um, put the poem in there. Oh, nice, nice. So you've, you've mentioned kind of the challenges with historically with being a black student athlete. Could you talk about some of the academic costs to being a student athlete as well? Well, you know, people, when they watch TV on Saturdays, you know, you're watching your basketball or your football, all you see is the student participating in a sport. You don't see what happens between Sunday up until that Friday. And so our student athletes are spending 40 hours a week just on travel, games, practices, and meetings. That doesn't include, say for instance, you also have to include in there as well, they're preparing inside the court or inside the gym or preconditioning. So that's even before they have class. And then they are enrolled in only 12 credit hours. So both you and I know you need at least 15 to graduate on time, right? So if I'm only in 12 credit hours and I'm in, you know, not those really hard courses, you know, the ongoing joke, particularly when I was a student athlete, you know, you took the scientists for athletes. Right. So mine was wonder drugs and mutant bugs. I have no idea what I learned in that class, but I got to be because what I need to keep my GPA up at a certain time. So they're in, you know, 40 hours a week on their craft. They're enrolled in these less challenging sports. They're enrolled at 12 credit hours. The lack of focus of the whole student, because so many times we focus on a student athlete, but not the student part. So there's a cause of isolation because they're technically a subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup, right? So they're already black, they're already male, and they're a student athlete. So it's very rarely they interact with non-student athletes. So the lack of engagement with clubs and organizations compared to their non-student athlete counterparts. The assumption is that they only are attending college to play a sport. And the last but not least, the university puts so much pressure on his athletic departments, especially your revenue generating sports. I mean, this is a billion dollar industry. And so it forces the coaches to push the players to win, therefore devote their time towards their sports, not their academics, which then turns out low participation rates in their academics and their career development because there's a high need for the coaches to win. Because if the coaches don't win, then they don't keep their jobs. So think about it. Your success is based off of an 18 to 22 year old child. I got a lot of thoughts. One, one that comes to mind is just the fact that you laid it out that it's a full-time job in addition to school, right? Like completely yeah. separate from the academics, like you are working, I'm, I don't even wanna say a nine to five, but 40 hours a week, that's, that's a lot. That is, that definitely is. And it's all year round. Right. So, you know, there is the time where you're supposed to start. So let's say basketball, right? Conditioning starts sometime in the summer and then you can start to play and practice in the fall. But that goes literally from October all the way. If you go to the championship to April and then the school year is over with. And so there's that continuous push to be the best athlete. And then what happens to our students who want to be, you know, president of BSA or who want to be a part of a Greek letter organization? They have to choose. So that's that's a difficult thing to do, particularly as any student, but then definitely as a student athlete. You know, I'm always surprised when I see student athletes cross. I'm I'm just kind of like, I don't know what you've gone through, but I'm usually glad when it's like in the off season. Yeah, that's 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 a lot, a lot to and bear. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I guess for me, when I see it, my first thought is, I wonder how much trouble you got in with your coach. Right, right. Not, or did you tell your coach? Right, you know, or did they find out when, at the probate? I'm sorry, new member presentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's kind of like, does the coach understand? Particularly if it's a white male coach, you know, does he understand the connection of you being a Greek letter organization, because to them, it could possibly be, well, your brothers are your football team or your brothers are your basketball team or the baseball team, you know? And so then the question becomes, if it's during season, did you sleep? Did you eat? Did you go to class? How were you able to participate in these two major time consuming things, particularly going through a, that kind of process and also um, playing your sport during the season? Yeah. 
that's a, a whole different conversation. Yeah. Um, so you, you have mentioned some of the challenges that extend the timeline. So first of all, taking fewer credits. Um, are there others that we should highlight here? Well, I, I guess the other thing is the family support, right? So we're still at a place where we have first-generation college students, okay? So if you look at the programs like your Upward Bounds and your talent searches, uh, your student support services, these programs were all built or designed, excuse me, 60-something years ago. So why do we still have first-generation college students that they don't know how to maneuver the college world. And so we know that the majority of folks, Caucasian folks, you know, they're up to maybe eighth generation and they're able to maneuver this world. But as a black student, black student athlete, it's challenging to maneuver this world. And so you rely heavily on your coaches. You rely heavily on a career and academic advisors because there's nobody in your corner saying, no, you might want to think about this or no, you want to think about that. And that reminds me when I was in college and I was one of two women of color on a 15 person team. And my coach was a white male. We did have a black female, but she's assistant coach. And it was time to register. And so it was time for me to start choosing my major. And I was a political science major. And so it was time to get into those political science courses but no, I got steered, and I use that word loosely if you want to use some level of um, slave with that, right, narrative, which is I got steered to the lighter courses. Like, like I said, the science course, which is the Wonder Drugs and Mutant Bugs. It was, you know, it was English Lit. You know, these are classes that don't require a lot of thought in it. And my parents, who were both first-generation college students, were like, no, that's not what you're going to take. You need to take these courses so you can graduate in four years that was the goal for me and my household. But the person who, the other black woman who was on my team, who was first generation, oh, she was down to like 12 credit courses and you know, she let them steer her right in that direction. Um, I guess another thing that kind of comes into play is everybody in that environment wants to see the school win, the team win, but the question becomes, do they wanna see the student athlete win? And that's always a really big question. And they say that they do. However, why are they still graduating in six years if they graduate at all? Why is there some level of quote unquote punishment if you try to graduate in four? We also have some other things that kind of, the academic cost is, oh, you don't need to worry about classes because you're going pro. And so, you know, research tells us that 98% don't go pro. Less than 2% go pro, particularly in football. This last uh, draft in the 2020, 300 men, 300 men out of what, 480,000 people went, went in the draft. And if you really want to be uncomfortable with it, none of them were from HBCU. Now, some HBCU grads did, or excuse me, didn't graduate, but they did get a um, contract but they weren't in the draft. And so those are kind of some of the things that academic cost is, do you go for the degree? Do you focus these four years on the degree? Or do you focus on, I'm, I'm just here, the one and done to go to the, to the next level, which is professional sports? You know, you, you raised such a great point around, you know, who are we rooting for, right? Like getting to the individual student. And I'm curious as to some of the narrative that you've heard, or if there's certain stereotypes that stand out in this space for athletes who might stay around longer, you know, or might not transition the way that they might've expected when they first enrolled. So, you know, it, it's kind of like, you're really only here to play a sport, right? I remember a football player, I can't remember his name, but he wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar. And they destroyed this man because how dare he want to be a Rhodes Scholar? His job was to play a sport. And so he got chastised and, you know, and talked about because he wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar <laughs> and had the opportunity. So the, you know, stereotype says you're not smart enough. You're only here to go to the next level. And I guess the other thing is some level of elitism. You know, 
I am above, I being a student athlete, above other students. So I can kind of do and get away with kind of anything I want to. So those are kind of the stereotypes that, that you hear. Um, they're not smart enough to play. They're not smart enough to attend the institution. They're only there for athletics. Um, and that they're only going to be there to as a breeding ground to go to the draft. And these are kind of stereotypes. And you also hear about them feeling like elitists because they feel that they're above or better than non-student athletes. And we somehow perpetuate that, you know? So there's like five reasons why students leave college. And, you know, those five reasons are academics, their financial aid, judicial, uh, parenting, they either become a parent or they have to go take care of a parent. And then um, they go pro or military. And so the stereotypes are the university or college is going to do whatever they can to make sure that you stay, even if it means adjusting academics, even if it means you get more financial aid, that, you know, if you get into some quote unquote, as, you know, boys will be boys, right? So that level of judicial trouble, uh, we can kind of wipe over that. Particularly, uh, it was a couple of years ago, that athlete in uh, Florida, on videotape, mind you, is caught beating a woman in public. Next thing I know, he wins the Heisman. So, you know, they find ways to make sure that their student athletes, you know, when they, when boys will be boys or they get in trouble, they find ways to ensure that they can either play or, you know, it's wiped off, you know? And so then we start to victimize our non-student athletes, particularly our females, because, you know, oh, this will ruin his chances to be pro. Do you want to really ruin his career? Well, no one should have really told you to wear that. And so those are those kind of stereotypes are, you know, they're not smart enough to get in there. So the only reason why they're there is because of the sport. You know, they're only there to go to the draft and they're above everything else, particularly if you're a starting player, you know, but if you're like a third draft, third round player, you know, maybe. But um, if you're like, you know, those top folks on the team, then you definitely go find a way to make sure that you don't get in trouble. So much of the introduction to sports, I would say, in the transition from high school to college is, is through the role of like recruiting, right? And so have you observed any like pipelining or through the recruiting strategies that work to advance equity in the classroom? So, you know, this is going to sound bad, but any recruiter's job is to find your thing and make sure that thing that you want, need, or desire is at their university or in their military. That's what a recruiter's job is, is to sell you a dream and you can see yourself in the dream. Do you remember the movie I'm about to tell my age, Blue Chips? Why does this With, sound familiar? Uh, huh? So why does this sound familiar? So it's got uh, 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 Penny Hardaway, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and so uh, the head coach, um, I think uh, I forgot what who's got head coach was, but his thing is They're I run a healthy. clean. Yes, 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 yes. I run a clean team. I run a clean program, and then the booster was like, "Yeah, but you ain't winning nothing." <laughs> he said, "Let <laughs> us let the program work for you, right?" And so when he would go out, he was like, "You know, you should come." Um, you know, good academics, great town. And Shaquille O'Neal was like, no, you need to pay me something. So Shaquille gets a new car. Uh, the guy from Indiana, he meets Larry Bird. He gets a new tractor for his family. So whatever the dream is, they sell it to our young students, particularly our young black males. And the dream always sounds like, hey, if you come to blank school, you can go pro. Or they call those previous alumni and they sell the dream too. But no one wants to stand up and say, hey, you may not graduate in four to six years. You may not graduate at all. And so I think it starts off with just being honest. Being honest to the fact of, it is hard work being a student athlete. Being honest to the fact of the majority of your time is going to be spent on this sport. Being honest to the fact of, if you get injured or when you get injured, we really gonna drop you like a bad habit, right? We'll continue to kind of um, nurture you and PT you, but because you're a commodity, we may not see it in the same light. 
And so I think it really starts with the recruitment of African-American faculty and staff at the university as a whole before you even change the recruitment of the student coming to the institution. In some places, the only time a black male will see another black male is with his coach. It's very rarely that he will see a black male who is a faculty or staff member, but will see him in quote unquote, a blue collar job. So institutional racism may be reduced by hiring more African-American faculty and staff, allowing, uh, allocating a consistent budget for programming clubs and organizations equivalent to the white clubs and organizations. We have to, as we being higher education, need to increase the number of non-athletes, um, minorities to these universities to eliminate the isolation that a student will feel. Because the reality is, when, particularly when I was in school, I could go up to two weeks on campus and not see another person of color. When I went to school, I can count on maybe one hand, the black faculty and staff. And that has not changed. I've been out of school for, as the old people say, a couple few years. So, you know, if we look at that, also we want to increase the African-American faculty and staff so that they can work with and help with the holistic of the student. It's important to focus on these reasons because you need to adhere to the institutional goals with employing black faculty and staff so that they can graduate these students that will become employable alumni. It will help with the retention rates of black male student athletes and ensure that they have options in employment, military, professional sports after graduation. So I guess I say all that to say, we have to start at the institution level, then trickle down to the athletic department, but really wanna go back to you know, we need to continue to connect with the K through 12 system. Because like I started off in this conversation, if we're losing them before they even get to high school, how can we recruit them out of high school? So Williams, Williams and Portman had a quote that talked about, higher education also needs to continue to work in conjunction with secondary education programs to ensure students have the skills to be academically successful in college, despite exposure to adversity, which would include poverty, inadequate, how, inadequate, inadequate housing, food instability, and financial insecurity. So, you know, I guess it, it takes three things. Institution level, you need to hire more faculty and staff that look like our students, which is African-American. We need to work with our K through 12 folks, but then also focus on the student athlete afterwards. So just don't recruit them from high school to college, recruit them from high school to college and then becoming employable alumni. So those are kind of, I think, the, the reasons for the kind of pipeline and recruitment strategies to work on. I love anything that talks institutional level. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how do we support our athletes to ensure they're successful on and off the field, especially through the university system, because the, the reach is huge, right? The opportunities are great. What could they be doing more of? Well, I, I think it goes back to understanding there's life after college. Now, you know, the research says that, you know, young people don't really see past 25, right? But that's the adults who need to tell them there's a whole life after 25. And so planning for life after college, and so particularly your student athletes, right? So you need to put your money where your mouth is in a career or academic advisor for your student athletes. Like that is their job to get you into the courses that you need to graduate in four years, right? If you say, for instance, graduate in four years, but you have one more year of eligibility, then that goes into graduate school. You need to have the career advisors, you know? So yes, you are now playing football or basketball, but is that what you wanna do after college? So they always assume, oh, you play a sport and you wanna be something sport related, like a coach or, you know, athletic trainer. When in actuality, your heart could be saying something else. But when I say put your money where your mouth is, this happens at the division one level. And so if you focus kind of on division two, they get the same dream sold to them as division one. However, in the 2019 NFL draft, 25 
went to the draft from Division II. Now, they don't tell us the breakdown reference to how many were from a PWI or how many were from HBCU. So put your money where your mouth is. Having career and academic advisors strictly for those student athletes. Planning for, college, planning for life after college. Shift their focus onto academics and related academic activities. Also, have them be more involved and participatory in academic and career development services. And then help them to be able to balance their athletic responsibilities and their academic challenges at the same times. So those are kind of the things I believe that needs to happen at the institutional level. Now, I have to ask the question that is burning for, for myself and probably listeners as well. Could you describe, you know, in detail or, or not, the difference it would make if we actually paid our student athletes? Wow. Whew. I know that's yeah. a heavy question, but it it, is it, a heavy it's question. one that I feel like no one has the full answer for. And I hate to put wow. that burden on you, Dr. Marsh, but I know you've got something. <laughs> you know, I went to HBCU, so we know burden, right? <laughs> so I, I think it goes back to some level of equity, right? So do we pay our non-student athletes to go to college? Like our academic folks who are on these, you know, going through the quad or at HBCU through the yard, and they're on the... Um, Act, uh, uh, the admissions brochures, do they get paid? You know, when they're in these videos and catalogs and, and, and commercials, do they get paid for their likeness? So if we're gonna pay student athletes for their likeness, then we need to pay our non-student athletes for their likeness as well. And I, I am torn, right? So part of me believes they should be paid because you're making not thousands, not millions, but billions of dollars off these young people. They should deserve a cut. You know, if I'm sitting up here 20 years old and my jersey, my jersey's going for $50, but I'm eating ramen every night. My mom is struggling to raise my siblings. You know, something should be given to me. Now, I do agree they should be paid. However, I believe it should be put in a trust, right? So if I don't go pro, I still have access to this money that I can either finish my college degree or I can buy myself a house or things of this nature to kind of change and start to have generational wealth. Same thing with our non-student athletes. You know, if my face is on the cover of the admissions brochure, I should be paid too. put it, put that in a trust. Now, on the other hand, they're getting paid through room and board books and a what 40 or $50,000 a year education. However, all that goes down the tubes if they get hurt. So if we change the narrative about why people go to college, because I believe, and your listeners are gonna probably start throwing bananas at the screen, that college is a privilege, not a right. And so if you have the privilege to go get an education and somebody else is paying for it, then you need to be paid for it in reference to your likeness. Now, if you really wanna kinda you know, uh, unwrap this, the majority of the money is going in the pockets of white coaches, white athletic directors, white colleges, you know, these big television sponsors, but on the backs of young black males. So we're looking at some level of inequity, but and also if you're looking at basically, you know, some level of slave master slash slave that, or indigenous servant, you're not getting paid for what you're worth. So I know I went all around the Mulberry Bush with that, but I do feel that if we're going to pay our student athletes to go based off of their likeness, that we need to pay our non-student athletes as well. Equity is still an issue. Mm, uh-huh, uh-huh. Selfishly, I've got some, uh, some old jobs and some conferences that I went to where yeah. you know, the black guy stands out, right? And like I'm in pictures for their marketing material. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I would love to just like, you know, send a little invoice like, hey, likeness, $1,000, yeah. thank you. I mean, honestly, because you're using it as a tool to, to bring in more revenue, why, why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a larger conversation that, you know, we're just, we being, you know, Black people and BIPOC people are demanding to be paid what we're worth. 
right? So we know that white people, they get paid for what they're worth because they've been taught how to negotiate that. So the fact as a black woman, I still make less than 80 cents on the dollar, but I could be more qualified and more educated than a white male. And so I think it's important for us as adults and also teach our young people to get paid what you are worth, to negotiate what you are worth. Because if we keep getting paid less, then we will continue to be behind the eight ball. So you go out and you reach out to that uh, organization and you get your money, Dr. Bell. Hey, hey, these student loans was knocking. I, I gotta get some. Which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One more thing, um, just thinking about that narrative again, how do we go about changing the narrative around the opportunity and achievement gap for student athletes? Because I feel like they get the, the worst end of it because we hold them to such a higher standard. I think the first thing is we need to stop treating them like commodities, mm -hmm. right? They are humans. They are young humans that started off playing this sport for fun, started playing off this sport to lose weight, to change their health, started playing a sport because my mom or dad did it. And so I think if we kind of go back to that, but somewhere around like high school or eighth grade, we turn it into a job for them. Now, you ever work a job that you didn't like? Mm -hmm. And you hate going every single day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Same thing with our student athletes. So I think if we, if we just change the narrative to remember why they started, I think also moving them from commodities to humans, but then also students, right? Like even though we say student athletes, the culture says athlete student, right? And we act like that. So I think, you know, focusing on the whole student, not just the student athletes, you know, making sure that mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, that they are successful and they're healthy. I think also, you know, um, we need to look at actually putting money, like I said before, where our mouth is in reference to career and academic advisors at all division levels, all division levels. The same ones that you get your tier ones need to be, you know, which is your division one schools, need to get the same amount of resources to your division twos, your division threes. Uh, so yeah, focus on the whole student, having career and academic advisors at all levels, focus on them as a human versus a commodity, the student, and then the athlete. And I think with those things kind of closes the gap that they then start to have career maturity, that their motivation towards academics is higher versus lower, and they start to change the start to change their mindset about why they even are in uh, college. Whenever I ask folks about the solution to whatever the the focus is on the episode, like Lauren Hill just always starts playing in my mind. Like it could all be so simple. Like the, yeah, <laughs> the path yeah. forward is there. It's just those in power and those with the ability to influence choose to go in the opposite direction. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're sitting up here, you know, but I, I want to kind of get some level of clarity in reference to this, right? That we're speaking majority about male revenue generating sports. And society socializes men and your young boys. This sport will take you to college and or the pros as the end goal. Particularly, they play basketball, football, baseball. However, female athletes, we are socialized that this is cute. You play the sport. However, you're going to go to college, get your degree, and they graduate in four years and either become an entrepreneur, go to graduate school. And mind you, the WNBA is only 25 years old, right? So there's a whole two generations that knows they can go to WNBA, right? So but the majority of them, particularly people in my age range, you'd have to go overseas. 
but we are socialized to know that this is college, you graduate in four years, and then you do something different with your, with your life. So we also close the gap in reference to gender and socialize our male athletes the same way we socialize our female athletes. I think that also will help as well. Dr. Marsh, you, you've mentioned how these academic costs impact Black male student athletes, but could you describe the difference when it comes to Black female student athletes? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think it goes back to, as Black women, we are always charged with, even from the day we come out the womb, that we can do it all. So we can, you know, go to class 40 plus hours a week with my, our time in our sport and still graduate in four years. And so, and still be more well-rounded, right? So our, our female sports, those coaches are literally driving home. You are graduating in four years. You'll be having the 15 credit hours. You know, this is a stepping stone to the next level. If you get drafted, great. However, the focus is for you to get out of here in four years. Um, when I guess the other thing kind of comes to, we don't complain as black women, right? Because if you complain, even if you're injured, then you're seen as, as, as weak or soft. And so we kind of lack a better term, we shut up and dribble, right? And so I think academically, the focus is, I have to go to class, I have to graduate, I have to get this paper, like by the term, this degree to make my family proud and also validate my black womanness and then go forth and either go to graduate school to become a doctor, a lawyer, or a judge, whatever have you. And if I, if, which is a big if, I get to WNBA, that's just like a cherry on top, right? But then if I get to WNBA, so for 2019, 0.9% out of 480,000 athletes who were eligible that year, 0.9% was in WNBA. For NFL, I think it was less than 2%. And I think for baseball, MLB was maybe eight or 9%. And then if I get to WNBA, it's cherry on top, right? But the other thing that comes in play, which is one of the five things I talked about why our students don't graduate, is the parenting piece. Right. So if a girl gets pregnant while in college or playing in WNBA, it's well, you can only be out for those six weeks and you got to come back. Right. So we're seen as a commodity as well, but a more supported commodity because we're women. Does that make sense at all? It does. And I, I want to make a note to my own language. Right. And I, and I said female and I've, I've mentioned on the pod before that there's many places where I'm trying to be better. Yeah. And so female is not the word that I want to use. I want to use women because I realize that female is typically a, a scientific term, which, yeah. you know, denotes that you are capable of producing children. Yeah. That's not what I want to say right here. What I want to say is, is women athletes. Okay. Did I say that? Nope. Nope. That was me. That was all me. No, I hear you, but I'm trying to think to myself. No, nope, you, you said it correctly. And that's what made it resonate okay. for me. Got it. Now, I mean, if you really want to go down Mulberry Bush, the transgender population in athletics, we can go down that pet bush as, go down that Mulberry Bush as well. Um, but I think that will take us off the path of how we started this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but yeah, that's in reference to women. So, you know, when I watch, I, I make it, I remembered when the WNBA started and it was like, that scene from the Wiz when they were going down the yellow brick road, it's a brand new day. <laughs> because young women, girls could stay home and play a sport. When before then, back in the 80s, particularly like your Cheryl Millers and the women of Troy and your Cynthia Coopers and, you know, they couldn't. They had to either play overseas or they had to go get quote unquote regular jobs. So how do you go from being this magnificent athlete to then have to get like a regular job? And so when I see young women playing now in the WNBA, it's 
they're college graduates, they're getting these endorsement deals, they're at the table fighting for the rights of women, right? But then that butts up against the NBA, who can't understand why, as one of the athletes, I can't remember his name, he was like, well, y'all just need to just shut up, it's not that deep. But I'm a professional athlete making the same amount of money as a G League NBA. So there's some level of disparity in that, and that only is highlighted at the professional level, but it always happens at the collegiate level. So you have to do more with less, still be this pristine athlete under the less circumstances, unlike your counterparts, which are your male athletes. And so the graduation rate for women athletics are higher in revenue and non-revenue generating. They are able to you know, bounce back quickly if life happens. But then also, they still kind of enjoy the sport. Somehow in athletics, particularly female or women athletics, they still enjoy the sport. And in that enjoyment, you give 110%. You ever look at um, our, our male athletes and sometimes it just look like what they've gone through? They don't look happy at all. They look tired. They look like they're 40 something years old. But when you see the women athletes get um, interviewed, they're always excited. They know what to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I know I'm just kind of going down a going down a rabbit hole with that. But that level of disparity will probably continue to happen until institutionally there is a change, and also nationally there is a change when women are seen as equals and get paid for it and get acknowledged for it as well. And I think if we maybe change that narrative, it may help on the male, uh, the men's basketball or football side as well. And so to that point, when we talk about pipelining and recruiting strategies, how should that, or does it at all differ for black women athletes as opposed to black male, black men athletes? So I, I think that the dream is a little bit more clearer, right? So Candace Parker talks about when she was recruited by Pat Summit. Pat Summit was the one of the best coaches, and still I think is the most women most winningest coach. She was honest with her, but you know I, I think she talked about also what what she can get you. She can get you a four year degree from one of the you know best schools in the country and get a championship. She was honest with her. Same thing with Shamika Holesclaw. She, they were, she was honest with her in reference to that. She didn't try to sell her this, this dream. And I think there's realness in reference to this is what's going to happen on this campus. This is what we're going to do. And this is how we can win. But that's not happening on the men's side, right? Um, because on the men's side, it's, oh, you'll get, you know, you'll go pro, you'll make all this money. I think on the, the, the women's side, their recruitment strategies are a little bit more honest, a little bit more real. I mean, some, probably some pieces of a dream, but it's not like a blown up dream. Does that make sense at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but then also, if you look at institutional level, there's more black faculty and staff women than there are black faculty and staff men. Well, Dr. Marsh, I, I appreciate the time, especially knowing that you come from an athletic background yourself, you know, the lived experience of being in that space and having to make those decisions, going through some of those academic challenges and costs. How do people keep up with you for, for two reasons? One, because, you know, student athlete, but two, because I know you do consulting as well. So I want to make sure we plug for the work that you're doing. Well, yeah, you know, um, I think the, the reason why I started this, this business, which is real simple, my name, right? M. Marsh Consulting, because it's about the brand, is because I remembered I was working at a college and this young man, it was his, uh, it was like April or March of his senior year. And I said, hey, we'll call him John Doe for the purposes to protect his, protect his privacy. I said, hey, John, how's it going? He's like, hey, Miss Marsh. I said, um, you know, you, you graduate in a couple of months, how you feel, what you gonna do? And he looked at me, he's maybe 21, 22. He looked at me like a five-year-old boy with fear and tears in his eyes. And he said, I have no idea 
He said, I've been handled since I was five years old. And now I have no idea what I'm going to do. I don't even know if I'm going to graduate. That broke my whole spirit that this young man, 21, 22 years old, had literally been dropped off the face of the earth and no one prepared him for life after college. And because of that, I swore that if I ever got the opportunity, I was going to save more Johns, more Josephs, more, you know, uh, more students said that, that they don't have that look again. And so my company's name is In March Consulting. We are a career coaching, training and development company. And we offer three services. One that I'm very proud of that comes out of my dissertation work is called Outside the Lines and it's career development program for college student athletes. And so that program basically is me working with athletic departments so that there's a four year plan to as your student athlete matriculates through that they are matriculating, I'm matriculating with them through career development. And so by the time they graduate, if they don't go to the pros, they at least have a plan for, should I go into the military? Should I go to graduate school? Should I become an entrepreneur? Should I be able to get a job and be ready for that? The second program that I offer a service is called uh, Let's Get the Hood Together. So I'm a doctoral coach because, you know, I, it was not my plan to get a doctorate. And so when the opportunity came about, I applied to eight schools. Seven of them were PWIs and they all said no. They told me that I academically was not going to be successful. However, Virginia State University gave me a chance and they saw me as a human. They even called me by my name, which is Miss Marsh, not Mecca. So there's a level of respect there. And I remembered going through some things and having somebody who looked like me in the classroom to help me through. So I'm a doctoral coach. And so I help people get through their doctoral programs because if I win and you win, we all win. So it's called Let's Get the Hood Together. And the last thing is called 4040 Foundation to Focus. And that is designed for adults who want to go to the next level, prepare for the next chapter, whatever that looks like. And there's times in their circle, they've outgrown their circle. So what I do is as a coach, I help you to focus through meditation, through SMART goals, through SWOT analysis, through uh, exercise, healthy eating to kind of get your focus for these 40 days. And that and all of these really services came about um, when I asked, I said, uh, I asked God and I said, God, I said, when you get me through this program, I never said if, I said, when you get me through this program, I will go back and get people. And so these three programs came from that. Of course, I got a website because you got to have one in this day and age. It's real simple, mmarshconsulting.com. <laughs> uh, also, uh, I have an IG page, which is mmarsh underscore consulting. And so some things we got coming up, you know, working with some colleges, universities on some programs for their actual adult people around student development theory. And we have clients for each program, which is the 4040 Foundations of Focus, the doctoral coach, and outside the lines. So if you are looking for an opportunity and would like a coach that will be real with you, be honest with you, meet you where you are, let me be that person for you. So feel free to email me, to reach out. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of it. And I just appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk to you a little bit about what's going on with our black male student athletes, how we can change the narrative, how, you know, hopefully in my lifetime that these stories will change because these are the same stories I heard my father tell as a college athlete in his time. So that's kind of who I am. This is what I do. And this is my life's work. And this is what I believe that the Lord has me to do on this earth. Hey. I'm not gonna argue with it. I'm glad you were able to set aside the time. And I also appreciate just the work that you're doing. Um, I know a majority of my listeners are students, 
might not be student athletes, but our students. So please tap in with Dr. Marsh, make it happen. Thank you very much. A big shout out to Dr. Marsh for joining us on the pod. When we think about the experience of student athletes, one, it's, it's completely different. Um, I say that like I was one. You don't want to see me on anybody's field or court uh, and not in a good way. Actually, today I actually went to a basketball court for the first time in a few years. And I realize now that No Jumper is not just a podcast hosted by Adam22. I need to get out there a little bit more frequently, but that's for another day. What we need to do is really take account of how our student athletes are trying to survive, right? Like when we pose the question of student athletes being paid, they are bringing additional students to campuses. They are bringing fans to stadiums. They are bringing future students. I mean, it's it's a whole thing. But there's many ways that you can unpack and slice this conversation. We'll save that for a future episode, perhaps. You just got to get the right people to have that dialogue. A few very quick announcements from your friends here at Equity Matters. The cat is out the bag. So I wanted to find a way to extend the life of Equity Matters while also giving space for me to be authentic, to be myself, while also still being meaningful, educational, insightful, slightly humorous, depending on who's asking. And what I've decided to do is I am putting together a podcast mixtape. Now, I talked about this in the last episode, but let's go a little bit deeper. So I'm calling it I Got Five. And of course, it's named after the great I Got Five on it, um, a song about charitable contributions to cannabis consumption. This is not what the podcast mixtape is about, but we're, we're following similar themes. What we want to do is take some really dense, difficult topics and start to explore and analyze them. And what I want to do is push myself out of my comfort zone. And so I'm going to try to make it all video. I'm going to try to analyze and criticize a few things over the course of less than five minutes. I know I have a tendency to be short-winded, so that's going to work to my advantage. I also have a tendency to get really deep really fast. That's also going to work to my advantage. And so I'm, I'm really excited to, to put this out. This will be the first time I'm putting a date-ish to it just so that people can hold me accountable. And so around August 2022, be on the lookout for I Got Five. It's, it's going to be it's going to be something. In other news, our relationship with the Cummings Graduate Institute continues to blossom. We are wrapping up the unmasking white supremacy and racism and mental health training. That should be ready sometime. I'm thinking this month. It looks really good. I had a chance to, to preview it not too long ago. You also know that we have two other um, trainings available with CGI around implicit bias and community engagement. Really exciting stuff there as well. Also want to make sure that you know that the Brothers and Social Work Collective is preparing for another training that is on how to amplify your voice in the digital space. If you've been listening to the podcast and you might think you want to start a podcast of your own, check it out. Link is in my bio. Um, again, shout out to the Brothers and Social Work Collective. That is Christopher Scott and Gary Trey Taylor. Other quick hitter announcements. Mm, I'm going back to work soon. So we'll see what productivity looks like for the podcast. Paternity leave has been a great addition and a great benefit. It's something that I do not take lightly. Whew, been gone for, for a while, but it's time for me to get back. As always, follow us on social media. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Might pop out with a MySpace page. Take it back real quick. Make a Black Planet page. But probably 2% of my listeners know what Black Planet is.
I was deep in the crush spot, but that's, whew, I'm aging myself. So without further ado, until the next time we meet and we continue these conversations around professional athletes and athletics and inequities, take care of yourselves, stay safe, stay healthy. Equity matters. <laughs>